Welcome to the RCAP USA Roundup, a podcast where we have real conversations affecting both cattle producers and beef consumers. We're your hosts, Jaden Moreland and Karina Jones. With that, let's get to today's episode. One of the foundations of our country and frankly our lives is competition, and the cattle industry is no different. On this episode of the podcast, we sit down with Brett Kinsey and talk about finding courage over compromise and why it is in fact not time to settle, but it's time to stand up. Today we have on our dear friend, our CAF Region 3 Director, representing Nebraska, South Dakota, and North Dakota, the newly elected president of RCAF USA, Brett Kinsey from Gregory, South Dakota. Brett, how is it going up there in South Dakota today? Wendy. The theme for this week is wind. We've been unseasonably warm and dry, and it's been pretty nice, but this week the wind just doesn't stop. Yeah, that's how it kind of is in Texas too. But so I guess let's kind of get started with an introduction to you, your family, your operation. How did you get started in the cattle industry? Well, I guess my brother and I and our families and our mother, we uh, we have a cow commercial cow calf herd. We've got a 3,000 head permitted feedlot. Cattle is what we do. All my income comes from the cattle business. I guess I think we're pretty special having a couple brothers and a mother working together every day and being able to get along. It feels like we've kind of beaten the odds there. You know, how did I get into it? I guess I just, I grew up doing this, you know, from a very early age. I just turned 50. So you you rewind a ways. And uh, when I was a kid living 30 miles from town, there wasn't a lot of entertainment. So we just worked. My dad, my brother and I, we spent a lot of time together. Dad always joked that we were good help when we were young, but it was a pain in the butt stopping to change our diapers. So that's how I grew up. Didn't really know how fortunate I was to have grown up like that, maybe. As I was a senior in high school, dad just kind of told me, if you want to go to college, you're going to have to figure out a way to do it. So I got to looking at the Army and went to the Army for three years. Had a great experience there. Went on to SDSU, South Dakota State University. Got a bachelor's degree in animal science. Drove home almost every weekend I was in college to work on the, the ranch. And I guess the rest is history. Well, we're certainly happy to have you on our team. And so tell us kind of what drew you to RCAF and how did you become so involved? How did you become the president of RCAF? (laughs) Well, I I think it's probably just growing up in those 70s, you know, 70s and 80s. I was young. My parents were active. A lot of our neighbors actually, too, were active and the American Ag Movement, that's the group that took the tractors to Washington. My dad didn't drive a tractor, but he did fly out there a couple times. But our family dinner table is, that's just where neighbors gathered. You're a little kid, you listen to people talking about the issues and the things that they see. And I guess I just, I grew up in that environment of people looking at things, how they were, talking about how they should be, how to get there. I guess I just grew up in a revolutionary environment, maybe. I, I don't know, but, you know, it just, just that theme of people taking it upon themselves to try and, and 
promote how they think things should be. That was just ingrained in me at an early age. You know, it's pretty crazy to see now. I would have been, I think, seven years old, roughly, when the tractors went to Washington. It was different because we didn't have all the instant media then that we do now. But, you know, seeing that on TV, now we come to current day, the deal with Canada. It feels like it's come full circle. It's finally gotten bad enough that, that people are just kind of sticking up for themselves and that's good to see. So that's what drew me to RCAF, just uh, good solid people coming together to try to make it better for the next generation so that we can continue to feed this country. So being president of RCAF is a big job. It's a big task. And with everything we have going on, what are some of your goals as president? Like, what would you like to see accomplished as an organization while you're in office? Well, there's a lot of different ways to answer that. You know, we could talk for a long time about all the initiatives that we have. You know, obviously, M Cool 5014, restoring a competitive market. A competitive market, really, you, you could, I think an argument could be made that a truly competitive market is at the center of everything that we do as RCAF. But maybe the answer is, the answer that I would like to give as president, somehow we've got to make these producers that are scattered all over the United States realize that they have value. Because that really is the thing that gets me the most fired up is I am just so tired of having all these things rammed down our throat from a million different directions that we need to be better at taking care of cattle. We need to be better for the environment. It, it just goes on and on and on. And nobody really stops to really to be thankful for what we do, how we do it. We've evolved over generations to do things as we do them. But we just see so much maybe highly marketed, well-intentioned into control narratives is what I fear in this industry and in this country, really. That is really, I think, the way forward for our calf, for the cattle industry and for America is, you know, we've got to take that thankfulness, have some pride in what we do and stand up, stand up right where you are. That's where it all starts, right? You don't have to go to the capital of your state or of your nation or whatever. I kind of feel about our calf like I feel about our ranch. It's not so much that I've inherited something, but you're just kind of the current caretaker of it. I just think that we have got to breathe some, some life into the middle class of America, the people that do the work, and just make them stand up for all the blessings that we have had and all the good things that we do. And I think that that's the key to getting all these initiatives that RCAF does. You know, it's just the realization, hey, Brett Kinsey can't do it for you. Karina Jones and Jaden Moreland can't do it for you. Bill Bullard can't. The volunteer board members of RCAF can't. You have to do it. And that's why I'm so proud that RCAF has evolved to where we talk about problems, we talk about solutions, and then we give you an action step. And I know that people are getting disenfranchised because we visited with a lot of people at the South Dakota Stock Show. People are just like, hey, you know, you tell me to call my congressman and I call and I call and I call. I've been calling for 10 years. I'm going to quit. And I'm like, no, don't quit. It gets the hardest right before you win. That's just the way it always is. It, it's always the hardest right before you get what you need. And in this moment, every day in the news cycle, it is accepted fact. Our food system is broken and we can maybe debate on how to go forward to fix it. But it is in this moment where we're either going to settle or we're going to stand up and we're going to fix it so that we can move forward 
you know, a healthier rural America and America as a whole. So Karina and I were actually just talking the other day about how you have been just like a constant voice in the industry. And as long as I've been on staff, you're always doing interviews, op-eds, and really just like standing your ground, battling for our industry. And like you said, people are getting tired of fighting. So how do you stay motivated and keep just keep up with this fight and just stay strong in this fight? Oh, I mean, again, it's just, it's thankfulness, right? You know, as you look back, geez, I mean, you look at our place, okay? We've been, I don't know, since South Dakota's homesteaded, over 100 years. Look at what the generations have gone through. World War I, the Dust Bowl, the Great Depression, World War II, Vietnam, Korea, the social unrest and the civil rights movement. At any one of those times, kids had to think, oh man, you know, it's, it's all over seeing the stress on their parents' faces, but we've came through it. And, you know, you have to be thankful for what we've come through, but now we are at that moment and we have to go forward. My time in the army, it was just leaving everything that you knew and going somewhere you had never been, being surrounded by people that you had never met, knew nothing about, and just visiting with them. Because in the army, the motto is hurry up and wait, right? So you've got, you're either going 100 miles an hour, or you're at dead stop, and you're sitting around and you're visiting with these people. And I guess I never being born into it and living the ranch lifestyle, I had never really appreciated it, because I didn't know anything else. And when you get to talking to other people, it's some romantic stuff. Having land and having open spaces and talking to them about working with a mean cow, you know, and, and showing them pictures of baby calves. And, and that's just kind of what keeps you going. Just thinking back to that, thinking about who has lived more free than us out in these open countries, you know, who who's learned the lesson that it doesn't matter whose fault it is, you're going to deal with the consequence, right? If you, if you get your fields hailed out, it wasn't your fault, but you're going to deal with the consequence. And there again, that brings us to current day too. This organizational bickering, this group blames that group and blah, 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 R versus D. Back and forth, nothing ever gets done. Paralyze the country because nobody can reach across the aisle to come together. Guys, it doesn't matter who we can blame it on. We are going to live with the consequence and so will our kids. And I guess that's what keeps me fired up. Plus having your back against the wall. I mean, I've, I've sat in the seats of the sale barn and lost 600 bucks a head on yearlings in 15. It can happen and it can happen really fast. So we've got to come together and be proactive. We need some offense. We need to get off this defense kick and just go after what's right. A competitive market is right. It's not too much to ask. Yeah, the three of us were all just together for a few days in Rapid City. For the Black Hills Stock Show, my mom always laughs because every time I come home, I'm always like fired up and pumped. And all of that really comes from hanging out with y'all and having conversations with you, Brett, and you, Karina, and all of our board members and members that came out. So, but back to the stock show, that was an awesome event. And it was incredible to see all those people coming out and all the conversations that were had. But one of the biggest things to come out of that was the cattle industry panel. And Karina represented our cap on that and you did an excellent job. 
So Karina, kind of tell us, fill us in on the panel. What kind of was said? What was covered? Give us your take on it. You know, just to preface this panel, RCAF has been a part of, you know, a handful of panels in the last definitely eight months, I think is kind of when our panel tour kicked off. And so we welcome any invitations to anybody's community to be a part of these kind of conversations and panel scenarios. And we definitely come as your guest. We do not dictate your panel forum. So setting into the Black Hills stock show panel, uh, it was definitely graciously hosted by a large venue, and that was really exciting. But um, that also meant there was a great amount of responsibility on those organizers to make sure everything kind of stayed on the rails and, and on task. And so that is why they gave us you know, five predetermined questions. That is why they, you know, didn't allow questions from the audience was because we had such a short amount of time. We only had an hour. There was literally a timer right behind the stage, you know, and so we were only allowed two, sometimes three minutes to answer those questions. And I know that some people felt like that, um, you know, a, a, t a true town hall should have audience participation. So I encourage you, if you would like to have a panel where you guide and dictate the format, go for it, do it, be bold, have these, these panels and these conversations in your communities. If you would like RCAF there, send us an invitation and we would be happy to make it work. So, you know, the, the, there was five questions stayed pretty true to the most contemporary cattle industry issues. Um, starting off with the BSE issue in Brazil, working into a competition question, a labeling question, a checkoff question, and then ending with wrapping up with, you know, what, what is going on legislative wise in DC for your group. And so I think we definitely saw some of the biggest divergence in position when it came to that competition question. And that's definitely a hot button issue for Brett. So Brett, talk to us about um, there, you know, there were some clear differences that day on that panel, um, but let's dive into dissecting the differences between 5014 and the, the compromise bill. Um, let's start with 5014. If you just kind of want to give a brief overview of why RCAF supported 5014. In fact, we were kind of the drivers behind it. We have been for years. Talk to us about um, 5014. A lot of people were for it, not just us. Yes, we got involved. We, be, we began speaking with this, these offices as, as it became more and more clear that, yes, we really had a problem in this country as cattlemen were receiving less and less for cattle and consumers were paying more and more. The, the 5014 concept came about organically because the scale of competition would be 100% is good and 0% is bad or just the maximum minimum range. So the compromise between the two would be 50%. And I guess I've always prefaced that I believe in this 50-14 concept, 50% cash trade mandate delivered within 14 days per plant, which is almost as important as the 50% coming from cash trade, the availability, the access to the market. That's how we came up with the 5014 project. It caught on. We had a lot of organizations sign on to it. We had 10 senators signed on to S949 because again, it was a compromise. 
for me, it has always been a bridge to antitrust, which is if we can somehow empower middle America to stand up again, I think that antitrust harms us all. That is the the issue that ties all of America together in this is the need for competitive markets that drive innovation, that drive entrepreneurship and risk takers. So for me, that that is 5014 in a nutshell, is it's a compromise to show what value discovery and market access could do for this industry. And I think once we see that in codified law by our senators who are tasked by the constitution to pass law and then hand it on to the letter agencies to administer that under the supervision of the executive branch and under threat of legal challenge from the judicial branch. That was the beauty of it. It's simplicity, the minimum standard in law. And that's what drew me to 5014. You know, when you talk about 5014 being the middle ground between zero and 100%, for our listeners, that describes to me 100% being that the Packers would have to buy 100% of their cattle in the cash market, basically putting a ban on unpriced contracts, 0% being we go full on vertical integration, everything is captive supply, and only funneled through those very small supply chain channels. And so you're right, 50% was the middle ground. And, and then we work into that conversation that it was simple. It was too simple for Washington. We were gaining steam. We, you know, we were getting hot with that issue. And Washington does it best when something has momentum behind it. There's lobbyists that have to create a diversion. And so that's why the compromise bill was probably incepted was to, you know, cut off the steam that 5014 had going forward. The compromise bill seems, you know, once we got it and we were able to parse it, we had some definite concerns. There was really nothing brought over from Grassley's Senate Bill 949, the 5014 bill. There's really nothing brought into the compromise. And that was a concern for us. In fact, it was so watered down and there's so many pages of bureaucracy and gray language. We communicated those concerns to those senators immediately before the bill was actually introduced. Talk to us about the numerous meetings our RCAF board had looking through this bill and the concerns that were raised. Okay, hold that. I want to go back to 5014 for just a minute. 5014 as a bridge to antitrust. I'll just say one of the reasons why we went with 50 was because it was that middle ground. It should have been something that would allow everyone to live within the system, right? We, we don't want to try to create some predetermined outcome for the cattle producers or for the packers. We wanted it in the middle so that it was a livable solution. It should not have disrupted the supply chain. That's very important, I think, to bring up as we are looking for something that's going to keep America fed as we write this ship of what's been going wrong. Now back to the compromise bill and how it was delivered to us. I don't remember what day it was, but I think I got a text at 1030 in the morning, which is odd because usually we get email correspondence, but we had an emergency meeting right at high noon central time to discuss a new bill that was coming out. So we got on that as the board of directors and we discussed it. And to be honest, 
at first glance with the press release that we were given to study the compromise bill because I say America suffers from too much salesmanship and not enough substance. But by looking just at this release that we were given, this summary, we were maybe cautiously optimistic that this would be something to go forward through. But as we went back and forth and found that there were more things that we didn't know than we did, we decided that we had to table it until we got a working copy of the bill. And once we got that working copy, then it threw a ton of red flags. And we went through that bill line by line. We came up with three memorandums, three separate memorandums with very specific questions and suggestions that we had to strengthen this bill. And we were almost flatly rejected. So while they called it a compromise bill, ended up turning into more of a surrender. Well, and it was a take it or leave it surrender. Mm-hmm. I'm fine with being considered a radical. Screw it. I wear it as a badge of honor. But uh, when you have thoughtful dialogue and you're just flatly dismissed, that was no compromise. That was a take it or leave it. And I'll, I'll be honest. <laughs> I like sayings, right? Here's a saying for you. A wise man changes his mind many times, but a fool never does. That bill was delivered to us with almost every organization besides NCBA and us, if, if I remember correctly, being in support of it. And if they didn't dive into that bill before they supported it, I'm afraid they, they were victims of a sale job. And I would ask them to go back through and look at exactly what it does, which I'm sure that we're going to discuss that going forward. So let's talk about the salesmanship of that bill, because of course you see the word compromise at the top of Senator Fisher and Senator Grassley's press releases. Everybody gets excited, but now let's talk about the substance and lack thereof. It's, it's a ton of pages that really raises a lot of red flags. Let's start off with the component of, you mentioned this earlier, you and I elect lawmakers to make laws. This completely punts the control of our cattle market to the USDA. What are your concerns about that? Look at the track record of USDA. And you have to realize USDA has 100,000 employees. USDA is so much different than what it was intended to be. USDA personnel are not elected. Sure, they're appointed, but some are appointed. To give that much power to an unaccountable and unelected letter agency of our government, a case could be made that the trouble that we're in as a country is that our lawmakers have freely given too much of their authority to the letter agencies to avoid accountability at the ballot box. Now, you might agree with that or you might disagree, but at any rate, we were not intended to be governed through regulation. We were intended to be governed through law. And yeah, USDA was never intended. There's just, there's too much access. You know, really, the reason we got to the compromise bill is twofold in my mind, and this might be harsh too. Somebody lost their nerve and the lobbyists that slither around Washington, D.C. are the ones that facilitated somebody losing their nerve. Let's talk about the power that lobbyists will have over our cattle markets by the way of design of this compromise bill. Look, I believe that competition 
is one of the most foundational things that this country is built on free competition, a competitive market, because you can't work a man harder than he can work himself. I just believe in that. That's what rose the middle class. But instead, what we're seeing is the creation of this beyond the market segment of our industry. People who have moved beyond the mark through unpriced contracts, through cost plus agreements, through direct feeding for the meat packers, totally legal. Some people think that's illegal, but when they rescinded the consent decree, that became legal. That's what all these changes have led to. And nobody ever got to vote on that. These are things that have just happened. And that's more of what I see happening with USDA because the lobbyists, are there every day. So we really have got to hold our elected officials accountable because that is the danger of USDA. It is kind of an entity unto itself. It's an entity that's swayed by captured academia. One of the things in the compromise bill is using uh, currently existing academic studies to determine what constitutes a fair market or, or a fair level of competition regionally. Well, why did they put in current academic studies? Are they afraid that once this is put in place and we see that it's going the wrong way, that we can't have another study that would that would change it? it it's a, It really looks like a rigged game to me. It looks like a bill written by lobbyists for lobbyists because it's a cash cow for the lobbyists that have offices in D.C. because they will become more essential than ever if you're a cattleman that that wants a cash market so you can get paid on merit of production, then you're going to have to send money to D.C. to have a lobbyist to promote that. It's just more more swamp. Yeah, well stated, you know, and if we look at the USDA's kind of current um lack of serving the American cattle industry, we can quickly see that in the snapshot of, you know, they they could flat rejected and ignored when all three cattle organizations sent letters to DC last fall asking for the halt, halting imports of Brazilian beef while the Brazilian cattle industry worked through their BSE issues, you know, USDA could have waved a wand and stopped those imports immediately. They did not. 37 years ago, the Beef Promotion Act in order was, you know, written, put into law. It says that we are supposed to have periodic beef checkoff referendums. Our Secretary of Ag could grant that tomorrow if they wanted. The USDA continues not to exercise their power to give the American cattle producer a voice while also, you know, kind of turning away from things that should be being enforced in the Packers and Stockyards Act, the Clayton Act, and the Sherman Act. So a minimum standard of conduct needs to be set with 5014, and that needs to be, that's going to require congressional action, not USDA. You know, there's been some other things that have happened recently that have raised our concerns about the compromise bill, including, you know, Tyson, once again this week, just absolutely gloating about their record profits, you know, in the first quarter of 2022. Also, then we've seen JBS settle in a class action lawsuit. But when you look at this compromise bill, JBS's plants, five of their nine U.S. beef plants would be excluded from a minimum negotiated cash trade bar two of Tyson's plants would be excluded and two of Cargill's plants. Talk to us about the exclusion of these plants and the concern it raises for our calf. 
for me specifically, looking at our food system on a regional basis and having exclusions here and exclusions there, it, it just flies in the face of, again, a competitive market. It's too complicated. It's too, it creates a shell game. You know, Absolutely. I mean, cattle are put on a truck and hauled 12 miles every day, day in and day out in this country. I cannot know how the shells are being moved to change the market because I'm a guy out here in the middle of South Central South Dakota that's busy feeding cattle and taking care of cows. But yet four meat packers can know. They can see what's going on. It's just, it's, it's a made to order punt from yep. front to back. The fact that we even have this reporting divided up regionally is a loss in my mind. And some people say, oh, you're just crazy and you're just negative. Man, I've had NCBA members tell me that livestock mandatory reporting, it started out as a great intention, but by the time USDA got it through all the lawyers and everything else, it's worthless. It's just absolutely worthless. It's actually a net loss. And I know that there's been bills to strengthen it. And, you know, I applaud that move towards transparency. But as of yet, the best I've seen those bills amount to is another autopsy of how it happened. And yes, autopsies can be useful. But when you're when you're buying cattle and trying to move forward, it's pretty hard to turn an autopsy into a business plan. You know, that's just the thing with, we've got to quit as this country being divided up into these regions and played against each other. That's where the people that have the, they're at the top of the ladder. That's how they play us. It reminds me of our kids reciting the Pledge of Allegiance every morning at school and ending with one nation indivisible with liberty and justice for all. This nation is guided by federal laws that apply from coast to coast, from border to border, not break, you know, not breaking the country up into regional areas where the law will apply here, or it'll be different there. And so it absolutely sets a dangerous precedent. The last little component, which is actually a big component of the compromise or the surrender bill that I want to talk about, because it's not talked about by anybody else but us, it's not in the press releases coming out of the senator's office offices, and that is this 300% issue. The, the okay. highest minimum can't be more than three times the lowest minimum. Absolutely. So we will literally tether Iowa to Texas. We will drag Iowa back from where they are, you know, the negotiated cash trade gold star standard in our industry. We will drag them back, could possibly drag Nebraska back as well. How dangerous is that, that suddenly we have Texas setting the bar and our Northern Plains states will be drugged back? Why should that kid in Texas, man or woman, why should they not have the same opportunity as that young man or woman in Iowa to feed their own cattle and have access to a competitive market. The other thing is these minimums that we talk about. If you tether Texas and Iowa, Iowa trades at the last I saw 54%, let's say. Texas at that time, I think that week was 13%. That's been a month ago. It's changed by now. It'll continue to change. But you tether those two together. I've had it explained to me by people who support the compromise bill as we should not burden Iowa 
with the majority of cash trade. People, what is the point of this whole, it, it's, this thing gets so con complicated, convoluted, creates a shell game that we lose sight of why we originally want to pass the bill. It's to get back to a competitive market with value discovery, with access to the market for your finished market ready cattle. We lose such sight of that, that we're going to say that cash trade in Iowa is a burden for the industry. We're, we're trying to empower these Southern producers to come up and have the, the option to have their ca cattle undergo value discovery. You know, another thing too, a, a spinoff of this that I haven't heard nearly enough is there's a Texas A&M study that I have yet to put my eyeballs on that miraculously came out of thin air. And if I'm wrong, I'll lead with my mistake. If it's out there and I haven't seen it, then somebody get it to me. Now that says that if we don't do something, if we don't get something, if we don't get this starting point that we can build on and work on cash trade in Texas going to go to zero, I would propose to the people that have a head on their shoulders that a small cash trade benefits the packer because a it shows oh well we're not vertically integrating these guys are choosing it and there's just this small amount that doesn't choose to pledge their cattle their perishable cattle unpriced so you use that small amount of cash trade to leverage all the other amas that are going on that that small amount of cash trade is useful to the people that are procuring cattle in my mind, because it becomes that bargaining point. Yes, it's a leveraged bargaining point. It's a thinned out bargaining point, but it's still a bargaining point. Oh, cash trade this week's only 130. You know, we're going to, we'll, we'll do an AMA with you for 132 or whatever, and you can deliver when you want. I don't know how to say strongly enough, people do not settle for the salesmanship. We are in a time where everybody knows this thing is broken. What you settle for is what you'll deal with for generations. This is the gift you're gonna give your children is a malleable bill that has to go through an unelected agency that won't do anything for two years and then does so very little, regionalizes us, divides us, pits north versus south, east versus west, excludes plants, looks at these academic studies, that man, if you've watched these Senate Ag Committee hearings, <laughs> the, the simple way to put it is smart in school and dumb on the bus. And the other way is, is that to put it is, is that these academic studies are conducted in a vacuum with carefully selected parameters that when you put them out in the real world, there's no way an academic study can take into account everything that's going on in this market. And that's Absolutely. what a competitive market does, is it looks at everything. When, when you're in the sale barn selling your cattle on that day, at that place, at that time, for those cattle, that is the market. And that's the beauty of it. And that's why buyers and sellers can sit together, drink coffee together, have a cookie after the sale. It's because at that moment, it's fair. Opposing sides coming together to have a transaction. And that's what we go back to, or America looks very different in three years, let alone five or 10 or 20. What you described, I often call the greatest transaction in the American economy. What happens right there between multiple buyers um, and a seller and a commodity in the middle truly is the greatest transaction in the American economy. And so I guess it's time that everybody needs to ask themselves, are they going to settle and surrender? And when I say settle and surrender, 
Think about your children's future in this cattle industry. Are you surrendering their future in the cattle industry because we decided to hit the easy button right now? Or are you going to stand up and we're actually going to do something that is going to improve the course of the cattle industry for not only our generation, but for generations to come. And so I wanna remind listeners that Senate Bill 949 is still on the federal register. You can still make calls to your senators, urging them to sign on to the 5014 bill, Senate Bill 949, because it is absolutely still alive still on the federal register. And so that is what we will continue to pursue is a uh, minimum standard of conduct that will apply to all of the big four uh, plants on a plant by plant basis from coast to coast, from border to border. And until you know there's something else that comes about that's even better than that, that is where we stand. So really fast. Okay, we just used a ton of industry terminology that not everybody grasps like we do because we talk about it and live it every day. So let's rewind just a little bit. And Brett, explain to me what the difference is between the compromise bill and the 5014 bill and like the importance of competition in our marketplace and explain it to me like you would to your kid asking you about it. Competition is characterized by the ability of a citizen to use his or her private property to generate a profit in a competitive market. That's what competition is. We need to be reminded, right? 5014 creates clear law from sea to shining sea. It is a minimum standard of conduct. 50% of the cattle have to be purchased cash negotiated and taken delivery within 14 days, which I mean, to the average person that might not be involved in agriculture, cattle as they're finished, it costs a lot every day to feed them, right? Four to five bucks a day when corn is as high as it is. Plus, when they get past a certain point of being finished, when they're ripe, when they're fat, then quality begins to decrease. So access to the market is as important sometimes equally as the price because they begin to lose quality. So that's why the 5014, the two components, we believe that you should have value discovery, open market, competition as, as we defined it and, and have access to that market because that is the stronghold that the packer holds is access to those hooks. You shrink the number of cattle that you can run through those plants, and that's their PowerPoint that will drive these cattlemen into these unpriced or AMA agreements just to get a hook, just to get them killed when they're done. Now, the compromise bill, in my mind, man, it should be on the cover of the Wall Street Journal. It really should, or politics today, whatever, because it's just, it's it's such a case study of what's gone wrong in this country. Again, it's senators who are elected to pass law that then hand that law to USDA to implement. You know, it's kind of like the highway patrolman that pulls you over for speeding. He didn't decide what the speed limit was that day. Everybody knew the speed limit in advance. And if you broke it, you're getting a ticket, right? That's what a law does versus just having cops out there running around, making it up as they go. And that's exactly what the compromise bill does. That's what it sold as. 
and it's there's a vacuum towards this compromise bill because it takes accountability off the Senate. The Senate needs to act. Everybody knows there's a problem. It takes accountability from the Senate and it passes it to USDA. And that's why we call it a punt. They're punting all that responsibility to USDA. And then it's totally malleable. It has a few guidelines, but it's malleable within USDA. And yes, we're gonna be able to give input on it. That's what they say. They, what are they? We can get this. We, we need a win, which I argue with. We don't need a win. We need progress. That's what we need. We need a win. We need progress. We can build on this. It's a start. Yeah, it's a start in Washington, D.C., where the lobbyists live, where the lobbying firms make a heck of a lot of money, all saying that they're working for the good of us. So that's the fundamental problem with the compromise bill is that transfer of power. But then you get into it. It regionalizes the United States, which, as Karina said, one country under God, indivisible, e pluribus unum. It's on every dollar bill you've got in your pocket out of many one. We are one country. We don't have a regional tax code. I, I would propose to you that the reason we have regional differences in cash trade is because of lobbying power within those different regions. Basically, we're rewarding the, we're asking the people who created the problem to fix the problem to some large degree. So, yeah, it regionalizes us, it tethers the regions who have resisted that lobbying lobbying power, who have relied on a competitive market that rewards them on merit of production and not on compliance to that market power of the meat packer, regionalizes us, tethers together, excludes plants. You know, there again, how can you exclude plants? And there's been arguments made, oh, well, this is a cow plant or that's this plant. Man, they can retool those plants. If there's a profit motive, they can retool plants. They can haul cattle. And so we cannot just empower this further shell game. To bring it back to the beginning, guys, if we let the powers that be, you know, what, what's the old saying you hear? I, I work hard every day and I pay my taxes. You take care of this. Well, how's that treated you? You know, in, the, in my 50 years of life, how has that treated you? Just that blind trust that the powers that be have your best interest at heart? No, you got to stand up. You got to stand up where you are. I guess I'm over asking people to join RCAF. What, what it comes down to is we, we can't do it without you. This has to be America standing up. You know, we, we see the truckers rolling up in Canada. It's coming to a head right now within these times. The things that generations have said, oh, I'm glad I ain't going to grow up to have to deal with this. Well, it's on us right now. And we don't have to be belligerent about it. Anything that I've said about the compromise bill or anything else or USDA, I would gladly sit side by side with those people and have that back and forth because that is the courage and that is the way forward in all of this is to come out in public as individuals and organizations being unafraid to speak to what we believe and to have the courage to have somebody else disagree with this and to have that conversation back and forth, back and forth to get to what's truly right going forward because this is... This is the moment in my mind. And, uh, you know, I don't, I don't mean to disparage any other organization or anything like that. I have a series of questions. I would love to ask Tom Vilsack if he wants the power that the compromise bill puts on him. And I know that his answer would be, I'm here to serve at the pleasure of the president and the Senate, and I'll do whatever I'm tasked to do. But I just think this thing has just gotten so out of hand and so out of whack. Competition, America is hooked on competition, but only for entertainment, right? 
I go to three to five ball games a week because we've got a lot of kids. And uh, you can't have competition without willing competitors that know the fundamentals. You've got to have a fair game. You got to have a referee who knows the rules, who has a whistle and isn't afraid to blow it. And when we get back to that, when we get back to those fundamentals in America, the fundamentals that we expect our kids to do, when we hold ourselves to that account, then maybe we can get forward as a country because this is bigger than just the cattle industry. So, okay. One last question. We ask everybody at the end of the podcast, what's your favorite cut of beef? And how do you like it prepared? I'll be honest with you. I've eaten more ribeye, prime rib, New York strips. My mom makes this round steak that is cut into strips and it's seasoned just lightly with God only knows what. She's an awesome cook, but it has sauteed onions and cheese melted on top of toasted buns. And I don't know if there is a better meal on earth than that. You know, that's like a low value cut, but it is. That awesome. sounds amazing. <laughs> as far as a steak, I like a New York strip. All right. Any final comments before we jump off? It all just comes down to courage. It does. And just being tired of it and being ready to just stand up, not to destroy somebody else, but just to stand up for what you believe in. So at the end of the day, when they throw you in the hole, you can say you gave it a good shot. People just have to really get to a point where they feel like they have worth. And once you feel like you have worth, you feel like you have the obligation to try and make it right. And it's just, it's really, you can make it really complicated or really simple, but that's kind of what it comes down to. It is always a pleasure talking with you, Brett. And we are so thankful for you coming on today and talking with us and all your work with RCAF and the cattle industry. In order for cattle producers to be successful, there needs to be competition in the marketplace. We covered a lot of details today about the 5014 bill versus the compromise bill. So like Karina said, that 5014 bill is still on the table and that is S949, the cattle market protection bill. I know y'all are tired of hearing this, but it is so important to please call your senators and tell them to co-sponsor this bill. That capital switchboard number is 202-224-3121. You can also email your senators if you just do a little bit of research into finding their emails on their website. You can find more information on 5014 on our website, www.r-calfusa.com. And please reach out with any questions you might have. We think it's time to get some competition back into our cattle market. And by doing that, not only will we help build back our American cattle industry, but we will also help restore rural America. So make sure to stay tuned into the conversation by following along on our social media accounts on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the RCAF USA Roundup. To learn more about RCAF USA, visit our website, www.r-calfusa.com. 